This is an ABC podcast. Hi, it's All in the Mind on RN. I'm Lynn Malcolm. We're hearing a piece of music by Bach, played unusually by a saxophone quartet. For some people, an individual piece of music or a particular blend of musical style, instrumentation or recording location may have a special place in their brain. Today, we'll hear new insights into the complex relationship between music and cognition. As you know, Einstein's brain has been preserved and Einstein was a very accomplished and very avid violinist. And so somebody was asked to look at Einstein's brain without telling him whose brain you're looking at. Just look at this brain. And the guy said, yeah, sure enough, this person, man or woman, whoever it was, was a violinist. And it was Einstein's brain. Don Hodges, Professor Emeritus from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And he's co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Music and the Brain. It's a groundbreaking compendium of current research into the rapidly growing field of music and the brain. Compared with the 1940s, there are many more papers now being published on this topic. Producer Diane Dean has been speaking with Don Hodges and first asked why research has increased. The largest answer is the sophistication of the equipment, things like PET machines and fMRI machines and so on. And also another significant change is that when these machines first became available to look inside the human brain, they were used almost exclusively for medical purposes. And it really wasn't until perhaps the mid to late 80s at the earliest and then on into the 90s and now increasingly so that we have scanners, as we call them, brain imaging equipment that's available for pure research. And so when I very first started at the Research Imaging Center at the University of Texas at San Antonio Health Science Center, this was one of the first opportunities we had to do research without having to stop when the ambulance came in to bring in a patient. The field of music and the brain in the past has taken a reductionist perspective. Could you just outline the reductionist view? Each one of these brain imaging technologies or protocols has a fairly limited scope so that in some cases, if we look at EEG and ERP, event-related potential, these things are looking at how the brain responds in less than a second. At the other end of the scale, when you're looking at something like PET or positron emission tomography, you're looking at regional cerebral blood flow. So it's how the blood flow changes from one part of the brain to another in response to what you're asking it to do. It's what we call a hemodynamic response, and it takes quite a bit longer for that blood flow to get there. And so now you're measuring it in terms of minutes rather than less than a second. So each one of these protocols gives us a particular window into the brain, and ideally we would want all of these combine into one massive experiment. But there are several major problems with that. One is that the technologies don't necessarily integrate very well with each other. So for example, with fMRI, that's a huge magnet, magnetic resonance imaging. That magnet is so strong that you can't take anything metallic into the imaging room, in which case, obviously, you couldn't take a trumpet in there. And even if you could take the trumpet in there, you can't play it while you're laying in the scanner. So there are limited things you can do, and you have to figure out tasks to get around those limitations. 
So is music especially suited to studying the brain? What are the advantages of using music? One of the things I think that gives music a tremendous advantage when you're looking at cultural aspects is that it's absolutely ubiquitous. From anthropological and ethnomusicological studies, we know that there are no cultures that have existed at any time in any place that didn't have artistic behaviors in general and musical behaviors specifically as part of their cultural behavioral repertoire. So that gives us an enormous universality, if you will, never mind the fact that musics are so different from culture to culture, what music even means and whether they even have a word for it or not. But at least every culture does seem to have something that we would recognize as music. So that certainly is an advantage. The fact that it's nonverbal and thus nonspecific and somewhat ambiguous, I think, is another advantage. It's not necessarily better or worse than using language. One of the real difficulties that we're beginning to face now that we've finally got, you know, some tools and some expertise and some know-how is that it's harder and harder to find anybody around the world who has not been exposed, in most cases, quite considerably to Western music. And so the indigenous people who are used to the music of their culture and never been exposed to Western musics, they're fewer and farther between. And so that's, and of course, it's not likely that you could take a PET scanner out into the bush country where you might find someone like that. And so we're running out of time, frankly, to get at some of these cross-cultural responses. And placing it in the very broad cultural context and the universally recognised things about music, is it possible that people would process their Indigenous music and non-Indigenous music in a different way? We do have some work on one of the chapters called Cultural Distance, a Computational Approach to Exploring Cultural Influences on Music Cognition. Long, fancy title, which simply means that they've gathered the research and began to look at that very question. And it looks as if many of the basic processing areas would be the same. So for example, auditory cortex, the hearing centers would be the same. Uh, Motor systems would be the same. But it's the cultural aspects that make the way those brain systems work that's quite different. So you find people who are comfortable listening to indigenous musics and then let's say Western art music. And so they're able to go back and forth. But you do find people who, when they listen to, quote unquote, their own music, their brain responds very differently when they hear music from another culture. And usually, if I could overgeneralize, the brain really likes to understand what it's presented with, you know, whether it's visual or smell or taste or touch or, in this case, sounds and music. When we're presented with something we don't understand, the brain works very hard to try to make sense of it. And usually it tries to make sense of it based on what it already knows. So if I've been raised in a Western tonal music culture, and so when I'm presented, let's say, with Chinese opera, everything about it is so different, but my brain is massively trying to fit it in to the structures that I already have. And it would take a long time and a great deal of learning to create new categories, new ways of understanding everything, the timbre, the rhythmic aspects, the uh, harmonic aspects, expressive elements, and so on and so forth. This is a really intriguing field, and there is some interesting work, but it is still quite a bit at the early stages, I would say. Let's say we're in the United States someplace and we want to do a cross-cultural study. Well, where do we find anybody in our communities, whether it's New York City or San Francisco, you know, Chicago, one of the big cities, 
You could certainly find many people with indigenous backgrounds, but finding people who haven't been listening to quite a bit of Western music on television and movies, it would be quite difficult. So now let's say, well, let's go to a remote village in China or Mongolia or in the bush country of Australia or wherever you are, then how do you get the brain imaging equipment out there? <laughs> it could be getting easier in the sense that we might begin to have more ambulatory equipment that could be taken out into the field. But again, it will be harder and harder to find people who have quote-unquote pure or untainted ear that they've only heard their own culture's music. Let's move on to musical performance then. And the human experience of music performance generally is very varied. And we might have an emotional reaction to a certain musical work, but only if it's performed by a certain musician or in a mm -hmm. particular concert hall and other performances by different performers or in a different hall don't elicit the same emotional response. Do we know anything about that? We did a study, it was published I think two or three years ago, in which we, first of all, asked people to use a rating scale to identify their preferences for a wide variety of musical styles. And so I do prefer country music or I don't prefer jazz or you know, whatever their responses were. And then we put them in the scanner and we asked them to listen to six different pieces of music. Four of them represented different Western styles. So it was classical music, country Western, jazz, and uh, I think heavy metal, some kind of rock music. The fifth category was Chinese opera. We made sure it was unfamiliar to these people. They, that was not part of their background. And then the sixth piece was their personal choice, their all-time favorite. And it could or did not have to be one of the genres they'd already heard. Each one of these was five minutes long. So they listened to essentially 30 minutes of music nonstop going from each of the four genres in the Chinese opera and then their all-time favorite. And exactly as you said... When we asked them for their all-time favorite, many of them, most of them, specified a particular recording, and we got that recording. So one person said, I want to listen to the last movement of Mahler's Second Symphony with Simon Rattle and the Birmingham Philharmonic. So we got that very particular CD, not a different orchestra, not a different conductor. Or I want to hear Alan Jackson singing, you know, Where Were You When the World Stopped Spinning? That's the recording we got. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September? So when we played this in the scanner, it was also a very different kind of methodology where very often these brain imaging approaches are, going back to the idea of reductionism, they're oftentimes very short snippets. Sometimes they're as short as just two or three seconds, or they could be maybe less than a minute. So to have 30 minutes of nonstop music was quite unusual. And then we also used a new protocol in which we're looking at how the brain talks to itself in real time. And so we measured 21,000 voxels, where a voxel is like a pixel on the camera of your phone or on your TV. A voxel is a three-dimensional piece of brain tissue. And it may have as many as 25,000 or up to 250,000 neurons in that tiny piece of brain tissue. So we measured 21,000 voxels in each of those five pieces of music. And we created what's called a correlation matrix, which means each voxel was paired with each and every other voxel to determine the degree of relationship. But once you've done that, you apply a matrix which leaves the highest correlations 
And what you do is get a connectivity map across time. So these parts of the brain are talking to each other in real time. And the rest of the part, although they're still active, they're dropped out of the equation. What we found out is that the music that you prefer, and especially the music that you really like, this is my all-time favorite, activates a part of the brain called the default mode network. This is the part of the brain that when you are awake, but inwardly directing your consciousness, the default mode, to use poetic rather than scientific language, is that part of the brain which recognizes me, first of all, as a human being, because we all have a default mode network. That's what makes us human. And second of all, I have a very particular default mode network because it's involved in autobiographical memories, emotional processing, empathy for others, my whole emotional history, all these things that make me, me and you, you. We know from conditions like Alzheimer's and autism, where there's a particular loss of sense of self, that the default mode network is impaired in some ways. We know that young children have a default mode network that's rudimentary but grows as the child and the person grows, and we add memories and history and so on. And so what this may tell us, and of course one study can't do it all, but to finally get back to answering your question, at least somewhat, it tells us that regardless of whether it was country, western, jazz, hip-hop, classical, opera, whatever it might be, it touched us at the core of who we are as human beings. And it strongly suggests if we now, and of course you can never answer all the questions with one study, that's uh, naive, but if we take that and connect that to the anthropological, ethnomusicological literature, which says, again, people all over the world have always been moved by the music of their culture, we can guess that music has such a powerful influence on human behavior, thought, emotions, because it's tapping into what it is that makes us human. And we share that with all the other humans. That's why we could have a stadium concert. Let's say U2 is playing to a stadium full of 100,000 people, and they're all in train. They're all connected in response to the music because they are all have a default mode network that's similar to everybody else's. But within those 100,000 people, each one of them is having a very individual, personal experience that isn't the same as the next door neighbor. It's a unique perspective that we all have as we understand life through our own filter. You're with All in the Mind on RN. I'm Lynn Malcolm, and we're listening to Professor Don Hodges, co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Music and the Brain. Diane Dean asked him about how our musical cognition and perception changes as we learn and age. Certainly when we look at music and its role in plasticity of the brain from childhood through adulthood and older age, yes, there are definitely age differences. To start with, we could say that in the literature on learning, there are sometimes called critical periods and then optimal periods. Critical periods are those parts of brain development when if something doesn't happen during a particular window of time, it's probably not going to happen. Fortunately, as human beings, we don't have very rigidly defined critical periods, at least in terms of learning in the broad sense. We do have what might be called optimal windows or sensitive periods. So we tend to learn things better at certain ages than others, partly because of brain development. And so if I step out of music and talk about language for a moment, we could see the difference between a child who grows up in a bilingual home learning two different languages. So let's say here in America, we have a Hispanic population. So we have many children who learn both English 
and Spanish, and they've done that since infancy. And so they speak both languages very fluently, and neither one has a particular accent. So their English is accent-free and their Spanish is accent-free. If I, as an adult, have never spoken Spanish and I go to a Spanish class, it's going to be very difficult. I could learn, you know, if I really worked hard at it, I could learn vocabulary. I could learn grammar and syntax to a limited extent. But to sound like and to hear native speakers, that's going to be very difficult for me. Now, part of that is because of the way the brain develops. And there are two things I need to talk about real quickly. One is called neural pruning, and the other one is myelination. So in neural pruning, what happens is the brain biologically doesn't know what things it's going to encounter in the world. So again, let's go back to language. We know that your brain is built in such a way that you could have learned any language ever known to any group of people living at any time and place. Part of what happened is that you had 50% more neural synapses, this is where neurons connect, by the age of two than you do as an adult. So the brain overshoots. It prepares broadly because it doesn't know exactly what it's going to encounter. Beginning about age seven or so and through teenage years and into early adulthood, the brain is busily whittling away these extra synapses that it doesn't need anymore. So it's actually sculpting the brain into a very refined shape. And that doesn't mean as adults we couldn't still learn, but we're not going to learn as well. The second part of this is myelination. The brain cell has a nucleus. And then it has multiple dendrites, which bring information into the nucleus. And actually, any individual brain neuron might be attached to as many as 15,000 other neurons. But it only has one axon. That's the long tail that takes the information away from the nucleus towards another brain cell or another area. And over time, beginning in late childhood and, again, all through teenage years and going up to about the early 20s, there's a process of wrapping this long axon in a fatty coating. And you could use the analogy of an electrical cord. So when you plug any electric device into the socket, the cord has a rubber coating. And of course, that protects you being shocked, but it also keeps the electrical energy transmitting down the wire and not drifting off into space. And so the same thing's happening in the brain as these axons get coated with the fatty covering of myelin. Our neural transmission improves in speed and accuracy you know, hundredfold. So the fully myelinated brain is really fast and really efficient at the exclusion of doing things that it's not supposed to be doing. So let's take a musical example now. If I am a four-year-old child and I start playing the piano 10 or 15 minutes a day, then I go advance to 20 minutes to 30 minutes a day as I'm five or six years old and I love to do it, so it's emotionally satisfying. My brain gets rewarded by quick chemicals. When I do it and do it well, my teacher says I'm doing well, my parents think I'm doing well. And so the more I do this and the more I continue to practice these scales and then etudes and exercises and so on, my brain is being sculpted towards what we might in this case call a pianist brain. And so the neurons and the, and the motor systems are getting more and more and more efficient such that when you get to a professional level concert pianist, the brain is really equipped to do what it's supposed to do at a very efficient level. To the point where violinists make a very interesting case study in, in terms of the brain because the left hand and the right hand do very different things. So the left hand, which is controlled by the right side of the brain, is controlling pitch. 
and very refined motor movements with the left hand fingers on the fingerboard. The right hand is doing what we call gross motor movements because it's moving the bow back and forth in a timing mechanism, and it's monitored by the left side of the brain. And it turns out that when you do that over a long period of time, your brain takes an actual characteristic shape so that uh, we say the morphology or the shape of the brain that an expert can look at it and see a particular shape of the brain that denotes this violinist to the point where, as you know, Einstein's brain has been preserved and Einstein was a very accomplished and very avid violinist. He continued to play all throughout his adulthood. And so somebody was asked who was familiar with comparing violin brains with non-violin brains. They were asked to look at Einstein's brain without telling him whose brain you're looking at. Just look at this brain. And the guy said, yeah, sure enough, this person, man or woman, whoever it was, was a violinist. And it was Einstein's brain. It's very clear that what we do across time makes a huge difference. Now, one last thing before we can kind of talk, go back to the aging thing, and that is the corpus callosum is a bundle of fibers in the middle of the brain that's the primary connector from the left to the right. So the two halves of the brain, the major trunk way of communication is through the corpus callosum. And so children who started studying music seriously before the age of seven, which is usually piano, or violin, and both of which instruments require left and right hand coordination. As adults, they then have millions more fibers in the corpus callosum than those who never played violin or piano. So we know most of what we know from looking at adult musicians' brains, and there are definite differences from those with comparative non-musician brains. And there was, for a while, quite a bit of controversy. Well, does that mean that these people were born differently? So their brains were always different, or did the training cause these changes? And the true answer really is both. That is, there definitely can be some genetic and biological differences in these brains. But we also know that years and years and years of practice does shape the brain in a very particular way. So while it's both nature and nurture, nurture, that is, the experience of practicing does definitely shape the brain in very plastic ways. So music can play a very strong role in the ageing brain. Could you give me an example of some research which demonstrates this? There's something called the NUN study, which was done here in the United States. And what they did is they took nuns who had retired from active participation in their work, whether they were school teacher or whatever they were charged with doing. And they were living in retirement communities in the convent. And they were in their 70s, 80s, in some cases 90s, and one or two even lived to be 100 or so. And they actually volunteered and willed their brain to science. And that meant that they were going to be studied systematically throughout the rest of their life. And when they died, their brains would be autopsied. And they came up with two major conclusions. One is, although the brain's not a muscle, it acts like a muscle in the sense that use it or lose it. And so when nuns stayed active, and they continued to learn, they took classes, they took up a new skill. I'd never knitted before in my life, but now that I've got time, I'm going to learn to knit. In many cases, if they did used to play a musical instrument, they were encouraged to go back and start playing the piano again or pick up the violin again. And so as they stayed active, their brains stayed very healthy. And it turns out that seniors who are healthy do just as well on memory tests as 20-year-olds as long as speed is not involved. Now, speed is a confound. So if you're comparing how fast 
you know, a 25-year-old could answer compared to a 75-year-old, yes, you're slower. But in terms of actual memory skills, as long as you're healthy, the brain remains very strong and agile. One of the things that music has, is, and again, I put advantage in quotes because I don't want to say it's better than, but it does certainly have some advantages in that. Let's say you're singing in the choir. Well, first of all, it's a physical activity. So, you know, if you've sung in a choir and you go to a two-hour rehearsal, you know that physically you're tired. You've worked hard. It's very cognitive. You're thinking all the time. You're paying attention to the musical notation and whether to get louder or softer and how to pronounce and shape these words and all the things that are required to sing well. There is a social aspect to it because in the choir, you're with people and you're sharing this experience and it becomes a lot of camaraderie and a lot of fellowship as part of that. When you're singing music, you're expressing things. And so there's a very profound emotional Involvement. And this has it leads to neurochemical releases in the brain. So you're getting dopamine and serotonin and cortisol and all sorts of chemicals are flooding your brain. So it really is a comprehensive brain exercise, if you will, that has so many different benefits. And even Alzheimer's people can participate in somewhat limited ways, but they can still get the benefit. Language and music, which have often been compared, are somewhat different in that language is much more discreetly represented in the brain. So we have a Broca's area, a Wernicke's area, and you know, dedicated areas in the brain that we know if you have a stroke in Broca's area, which for most right-handed English speakers is in the left side of the brain. And so if you had a Broca's aphasia, you can't speak anymore. If you have a Wernicke's aphasia, which is on the usually, again, on the left side and farther back in the brain, then you can speak, but you don't understand when somebody speaks to you. And then there's alexia and agraphia, inability to read and to write. So, you know, pretty discreetly organized. Music, on the other hand, is much more diffuse. It's scattered all throughout the brain, left and right and top and bottom, back and front. Doesn't make it better or worse than language. It's just it's somewhat different. And so the very first brain experiments I did with some neuroscience colleagues back in the early 90s, they were just astonished at how much activation there was all over the brain. If you just put people in the scanner and play music, there's so much noise, so much activity that you really can't make any sense of it. You have to tease it apart to look specifically at this or that aspect. So when you listen to music or you're engaged in music, there are audio motor systems, the part of the brain involved in hearing and the part of the brain involved in motor activity. So even if you were just sitting in the audience and you're listening to music that's highly energetic and, and very strongly rhythmic, your body responds to it. Your head nods, you tap your foot, your body sways because your audio motor systems are working in tandem. There are long-term storage aspects when you listen to music, particularly music that's familiar. And so you begin to recall times when you heard that music in the past. That's why couples oftentimes have what they call their song. It's the music that they fell in love to that was particularly important to them in their earlier days together. And so all throughout their lives, when they hear that, it recalls that very powerful experience. So there's memory components, emotional responses, motor responses, visual responses. Quite a bit of interesting research shows that we listen with our eyes. You know, there's almost no part of the brain that's not being turned on and fired up and involved in a musical experience. So when you get to Alzheimer's, I'm not an Alzheimer's expert, so this is a sort of layman's simplistic view of it. When the, what they call plaques and tangles, the things that begin to chew away at different aspects of the brain. So there are holes here, there, and yonder where parts of the brain and the connectivity has been disrupted. When you have a very discrete network, it's not so difficult to knock out that system. 
Alzheimer's individuals very often lose their ability to speak because that part of the brain network can be disrupted more easily. On the other hand, they can respond to music sometimes very late into deep dementia because there are so many different pathways to get access to it. Professor Emeritus Don Hodges, co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Music and the Brain. As exciting as this project has been and as astounding as some of the discoveries and the progress we've made and the technology is just getting so amazingly advanced, I really think in 25, 30, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to look back and say, oh gosh, they were playing with Tinker Toys. And of course, we're more advanced than that. But I'm excited because now we have a pretty amazing roster of people out there dedicating their scientific life to discovery of how the brain and music come together and give us this phenomenal gift. Don Hodges, Professor Emeritus from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, speaking with All in the Mind producer, Diane Dean. Today's sound engineer is John Jacobs. I'm Lynn Malcolm. Join me next week for the first of our series of All in the Mind highlight programs from 2019 for RN Summer. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.